Good morning. My name is Danny, and I'll be reading from Amos 8, 4 through 7. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. They're saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat. Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. Buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. Good morning. Uh, The New Testament passage is from Luke 16, verses 1 through 13. He, which is Jesus, also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do I owe you, my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do I owe you? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it falls, fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then... You have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth. Who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is their own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sherman. Um, I called my sermon this morning the hardest parable, Um, and I stole that. Uh, I stole it from every commentator that I read, Um, and especially I stole it from Robert Capon, who has three books on the parables. He covers every one of them, and his chapter on this parable is called The Hardest Parable. Um, just about everybody that I read said that this parable in Luke 16 is the most confusing passage in the New Testament. And they each then followed that declaration with 
uh, a different interpretation from the other. Uh, some offered three or four interpretations. Um, so if you were listening closely to the scripture reading, uh, were you? <laughs> uh, if you were listening closely, you should be confused. Um, that would be appropriate. And if we were to go into the Greek, you would be even more confused. Here's the thing. There is no clear right answer to what the heck is going on in this text. So here's what happens. Right after the parables that we talked about last week, um, often called the parables of the lost things, uh, Jesus turns to his disciples and he tells this story. A rich man hears that his manager has been squandering his possessions. And we don't exactly know what squandering is or what the possessions are, but some, in some way, this rich man's manager is not doing a great job. And he, the manager calls him in and says, or the master calls him in, calls in the manager and says like, what's going on? You can't be my manager anymore. And so the manager leaves in a bit of a panic because he's losing his job. Um, but I guess he still has his name tag and access card because he calls some people into his office like he still works there. Um, this is why we escort people out of the building when they get fired. Um, he calls in two people who owed the rich man money, and he says, like, quick. He actually says, quick. Uh, take your bill and cut it down. Now you don't owe so much. Um, and these people trust that he still works there, and they do as he tells him. And I assume that they're grateful. He, the manager has knocked off about 500 denarii worth of goods from each of their bills. Um, that's about 500 days wage for a day laborer. Um, it's a lot of money. And the manager figures that if he extends kindness to these debtors, then when he's got no place to go, maybe they'll welcome him into their houses. And that, that might mean like he'll offer them hospitality, or it might mean that maybe they'll give him a job. Um, we don't really know. And here's where it gets confusing. Then Jesus, or the rich man, I think the text we heard said the master, but the Greek is, is ambiguous. It could be Jesus or the rich man. Uh, one of them commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And Jesus says, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What does that mean? <laughs> and then Jesus goes on to say a bunch of stuff about money that like, is generally true, um, but it doesn't clearly makes sense with the parable, at least not easily. One person, I, one commentator said, like, it kind of looks like a preacher who got this story and is like, oh, this is a good story. I could teach this or this or this with it because they all kind of work, but you have to read it differently to get those meanings. So it's, it's, a, bit of a, con it's a bit confusing. Um, anyway, uh, like, none of the, the interpretations that I read are particularly satisfying in this. Um, one writer uh, made a list of the questions that this text proposes. She said, why does the rich man, or Jesus, commend the dishonest manager? Why does Jesus offer his followers such an unsavory character as a role model? 
In what sense are the children of light supposed to take their cue from the shrewdness of this self-interested scoundrel? And why is this parable followed by so many convoluted platitudes and glosses? And like those are some of the questions, but there are more. Like, is the manager a slave or a free person? He could have been either. And there are lots of arguments on either side. And for, for what it's worth, I think he's free. There are people who disagree with me. Uh, is the rich person a good or a bad person? Um, given Luke, like Luke and how Luke generally deals with wealth, some people want to make the argument that the rich person is definitely a bad person because that's how Luke talks about wealth. Um, but like the story doesn't actually say that. Um, and sometimes, like in the prodigal son, which is right before this, uh, the wealthy person is okay, actually is the representative of God. Uh, so maybe, either way. If we want to get into the economics of the time and how these kinds of relationships work, we can ask, like, maybe the manager is actually doing something good here. Maybe he's just cutting off his portion of the debts, what he would have gotten. Or maybe he's cutting off, like, some exorbitant interest that the rich man would have, like, laid on these debtors. Um, again, for what it's worth, I don't think that's what's happening. Uh, but the questions go on and on and on. It is confounding and none of the interpretations are particularly satisfying. Uh, Robert Capon, um, from whom I stole the title of the sermon, said that he reads this passage, uh, he said, on months with 31 days, I read it this way, and on months with 30 days, I read it this way, and on the 29th of February, he reads it in one way that he really doesn't like, and then... <laughs> And then the rest of the days in February, he spends his time remembering that it actually doesn't matter that much whether he gets his reading right. Um, and I appreciate that, like partly because it's honest, and partly because our faith is not actually dependent on our getting our biblical interpretation exactly right on every count. Um, like, that's important, and we want to work at it but we depend entirely on the life and work of Jesus. We depend solely on God's grace towards us and the work that God has done on our behalf, not on getting everything right exactly. It's okay not to know everything. But uh, you could see how that puts me in a tight spot, uh, having to preach a sermon to all of you right now. Um, but I tell you all this not because I want you to feel sorry for me. Uh, this is actually a pretty sweet gig as far as I'm concerned. Um, but because I tend to think that if God wanted it to be super clear, God could have made it so. The life in Scripture is in the struggle with it. It's in the questions and the wrestling it doesn't always unveil like this perfect moral of the story that will just rain down blessings on us and lift our spirits and order our days just so. Like it is often messy. And maybe a passage like this is most valuable because of the confusion and the humility that it brings. Maybe God gave us the confusion on purpose. Even here, I believe that God's word will do what it intends. Um, sometimes God teaches us in ways that we do not expect. And actually, that is one thing that does seem clear in this passage. 
Like, why on earth does Jesus use this dishonest manager as an example? Like, there are lots of questions about this passage, but that's the biggest one. We just don't want to learn from a guy who swindled his boss. And we don't understand why Jesus asked us to. We want to learn from the good guys, right? Because we want to be good guys. Striving to do better, like an upward trajectory and straight line. And Jesus does give us lots of opportunities to do that, to learn from more upstanding citizens. But also, like, does it actually sound like Jesus to only hold up the perfect ones? Last week, we talked about how the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were upset because Jesus welcomed sinners and ate with them. And we're still in that context. Like, they were upset about it. Jesus told the parables of the lost things. And then he turned to his disciples and told this story. So the crowds are still there. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are still there. And he's just talking to his disciples. Maybe here, Jesus' broad welcome is going one step farther. Maybe here he is honoring the sinners by asking the disciples to learn from even them. I mean, this man man was dishonest in how he dealt with his master's wealth, but he was also, like, really clever. He hit on a hard spot and came up with a solution that not many people would have thought of. He worked quickly to to do what what needed to be done, and he knows the way the world works. And that word shrewd can be translated as prudence or wisdom. And he was wise in a certain kind of way. Maybe the children of the light can stand to learn something about the kind of creativity, about that kind of creativity in dealing with tough situations. Like, uh, thinking about this reminded me of this uh, story I heard about a little town in Germany. It's called, I'm going to say this wrong, like Wunseidel. Uh, Neo-Nazis used to... Um, use that town as kind of like a pilgrimage spot, uh, they would ha- and they would have a parade there every year. And like, there was some famous Nazi buried there, and they thought that was cool. Anyway, the townspeople did not like it, and they didn't know what to do for years. This parade would happen in their town every year. But then somebody had this brilliant idea. They turned the whole thing into a walkathon. Uh, <laughs> like, I love it. They sponsored the marchers. And then they raised, used it to raise money for an anti-Nazi organization. And they raised over 10,000 euros. So they cheered on these marchers as they walked, and at the end, they thanked them all for their hard work. <laughs> like, I love that kind of thinking. And it is shrewd, right? As followers of Jesus, you know, because our first concern is not our reputation or our wealth or even following the cultural rules or even the laws sometimes, because we are beholden to something that's beyond all of that, looking forward to a kingdom that is entirely other than this one, because we don't even have to protect our lives. Like, we believe that if we die, we'll live again. Because of all that, we have incredible space to be creative, to do things differently than the world around us even more so than a dishonest manager or a walkathon. But we do have to be clever about it. Uh, the marchers and 
or the marches and the sit-ins of the civil rights movement under the leadership of Dr. King, they took their energy and creativity and courage from that place, a combination of knowing how the world works, how people work, and also having a firm hope in Jesus. Um, there's also this, <laughs> I read this story, um, there's a book called, what's the book called? Soil and Sacrament. Um, and there's this story in it about a town in Mexico that was persecuted by the government. Um, I'm not sure if that's still happening or not. This, I don't know when the book was written, but it was definitely true in the 90s when he was talking about it. Anyway, the, the town was Mayan Catholics, and the government had declared war on the Mayans, um, and they were trying to wipe them out. Because, and they were, yeah, trying to wipe them out. And there were peace activists working there, um, trying to kind of solve this problem. Uh, but one thing that they did was clever in just this way. They had the white activists camp around on the outside of the town. Um, they knew that the government soldiers maybe wouldn't think twice about killing a Mayan farmer. But it would draw attention if they killed a white person. Like, it's sad that the world works like that, but it was really effective, and a lot less Mayan farmers died because of it. Love and holiness and righteousness, seeking the flourishing of all, it does not always look just like being nice to each other. Sometimes, we have to be a little more clever. That's why like, I have, don't have any hesitation um, in asking people to learn skills in order to love well. Right? Like, sometimes people think that if they just like, feel the right way, then their love will be understood and received as such, their work will be good. Um, and sometimes that's true. And sometimes people think that like, their holiness can only come through prayer and Bible reading in church, and like, it absolutely should be grounded there. But we can also learn things about how the world works and how people work, even from non-Christian spaces, like sometimes our holiness requires us learning some skills. Um, it used to be true that when Tony and I would fight, uh, I wouldn't say anything because, because what I wanted to say I knew was not very helpful, uh, mostly bad words. Um, and so like maybe that was good that I was quiet at that space, but it left me like I can't engage this at all um, and I needed to learn the language of disagreement, right? I needed to learn what it's helpful to say in those spaces and what questions to ask, how to calm myself down, how to trust myself and to know what was happening in me. Like, I had to learn some things in order to engage that well and lovingly. Um, I still, you know, I still have lots of things to learn, but, you know, that kind of thing is true for all of us. Part of our holiness is sometimes just learning how things work, and we can learn from anywhere, including this less than savory character in our passage. Um, we don't have to freak out when Jesus honors him in this way by saying that the people of the light can learn from this dishonest manager and maybe we can learn from every scoundrel and societal outcast. Rich and powerful and educated people in the scriptures and now often have a hard time accepting Jesus and learning to rely on Jesus alone. The gospel is much better understood from the margins.
Like, I'd never heard this before, but one commentator on this parable just made a note that it is kind of among several parables that, that this commentator called parables of crisis, where someone who's relatively well off hits a crisis and their salvation lies below them on the social ladder. Um, the commentator said this, um, just kind of listing examples. The anonymous Jew on the road to Jericho would seem to be superior to a Samaritan, but lying half dead in a ditch, he will accept any neighbor who comes by. The prodigal finds himself def- the prodigal son finds himself desperate enough to join the hired, ha- hired hands, kind of willing to stoop below, right? His superior older brother cannot join the party unless he reconciles himself to his scoundrel sibling. The rich man, which is like the next thing in the chapter that we're reading, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man ignores lowly Lazarus, but in the next world, he will beg for Lazarus's help. These parables suggest a world in which status is fleeting, even dangerous. The manager who once controlled the accounts of the master's debtors must now hope for their hospitality. In each case, when they hit a crisis, their salvation lies below them on the social ladder. And look what's happening here. Though Jesus isn't speaking directly to them, the wealthy, educated, powerful Pharisees are overhearing what he is teaching, offering a moral teaching through this manager who is a servant and a sinner. Their blood must have boiled. And Jesus uses the dishonest manager to indict them, really, um, when they hear the stories, the, the story, the Pharisees react, and that's just beyond our passage in the next two verses. Um, when Jesus says, you can't love God and money, Luke tells us, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And then Jesus turns to them and says, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Money, power, and status are not so valuable in the upside-down kingdom of God. We scrimp and save, and Jesus says we would be better off to invest by putting our money in the hands of the poor. Then instead of worldly wealth, we would have something that would last. True wealth that can't be stolen, that's not subject to inflation, that, won't, that we won't leave behind when we die. And all you have to do to give this treasure is to, to get this treasure is to give your money away. Like I love this idea of investing your money by giving it away. Um, in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of those who serve money, that's the worst possible investment. And Jesus says, like he's talking about it, saying, if you're not responsible with the wealth that you had, who's going to be responsible for you later? Like, responsible, in Jesus' eyes, is to give the money away. We are not of this world. We are children of light, pledging allegiance to the upside-down kingdom of God. For us, down is up. We're just like the people in the parables of the of, the, of crisis, relatively well off, and our salvation depends on one who is below us on the social ladder, because God wanted it to be so.
God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, came to us in Jesus, a child born in suspicious circumstances, a refugee, poor, disrespected, despised by the powerful, betrayed and abandoned and tortured and ridiculed, becoming sin for us even, and then dying the death of a traitor, the worst possible, most gruesome and degrading death the Roman Empire could conceive of. And then, of course, he's dead. You just can't go much lower than dead. But dead, it turns out, is exactly what you need for resurrection. Our salvation lies at the bottom. We would do well not to despise what seems below us. Maybe we can let go of all the pressure on us to climb higher. The kingdom of God is not like this world. Let's pray. Lord, I know I am almost always caught up in some sort of scheme to build myself up, um, to show that I know, uh, to show that I'm worth it, um, and I'm grateful for your mercy. Pray for all of us that we would find the relief of letting go and the wisdom of listening to those um, that the world says we shouldn't listen to. Lord, that we would follow you down. Find grace and resurrection there. In Jesus' name, amen.